0: to episode 140 of the big rhetorical podcast on this episode of the podcast i interview the editors of the new book hex gen ed that's available via the white clearinghouse i want to remind you all listeners of our open call for topical episodes on the big rhetorical podcast Last year, we were able to take part in a collaboration with undergraduate technical communication researchers under the direction of Dr. Calvin Pollock at Utah State University. Now, I learned a lot about the podcast. I learned about our digital footprint, and I also learned about how we can think about podcasts and podcasting to teach technical communication. One of the things that those researchers mentioned was an increase in topical episodes. So I usually have one to two topical episodes each year. I think it's time to increase that number. So I thought an open call here on the podcast would be the best way to do so. Are you interested in joining me for a discussion on a certain topic? Even better, would you propose your own topic to discuss? I want to hear from you. So reach out to us. Uh, You can visit our website or send us an email at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Reach out to us with your pitch. I can't wait to hear from you all. Text Gen Ed is a new open access collection focused on generative AI. Edited by Annette V, Tim Lacantano, and Carly Schnitzler, the collection features undergraduate level assignments to support students' AI literacy, rhetorical and ethical engagements, creative exploration, and professional writing, along with an introduction to guide instructors' understanding and their selection of what to emphasize in their courses. Annette V. is Associate Professor of English and Director of the Composition Program at the University of Pittsburgh, where she teaches undergraduate and graduate courses in writing, digital composition, materiality, and literacy. Timothy Lacantano is Associate Professor of English and Director of the College Writing Program at Lafayette College. He primarily uses qualitative research to study how ordinary writers adopt and adapt to new communication technologies. Carly Schnitzler is a lecturer in the University Writing Program at Johns Hopkins University, where her teaching and research focus on digital rhetoric, Creative Computation, and the Public Humanities. I hope you enjoy my interview with Annette, Tim, and Carly. Who are you? What's your name, your title, and your uh, institution, and your role there? Who are you, and what do you do?
1: Hi, thanks, Charles. First of all, I'm glad to be here. Um, so I am Annette V. Uh, my title is associate professor of English, and right now I'm director of composition, which is a rotating role at University of Pittsburgh. Um, and I teach graduate classes, uh, undergraduate classes, direct the composition program, and um, and do research like this.
2: Yeah, I, I'm really excited to be here, Charles, and it's and it's good to be back with with you, Tim and Annette. Um, I'm Carly Schnitzler. I just uh, finished up a graduate program, a PhD at UNC Chapel Hill, and I'm in my first role um, at uh, Johns Hopkins as a lecturer in the university writing program. And I'm, I'm thrilled to have, to have landed there, and I'm excited to kind of build a long and exciting career uh, there. Um, I, I teach, right now I'm teaching first year writing but also developing upper-level writing courses, and I do research on uh, community rhetorics and creative computation.
3: Uh, It's good to meet you as well. Um, I'm Tim LaQuintano. I am an associate professor of English at Lafayette College, which is one of the many, many small liberal arts colleges in Pennsylvania. I'm also the director of the college writing program.
0: Excellent. Um, so you all here are joining me today to talk about your new book, Text Gen Ed, which is available from the WAC Clearinghouse. I'm going to just kind of throw this question out there and you all can jump in in whatever order and however you want to answer it. But this is a book that includes, I think, thirty four different undergraduate writing instruction um, activities adaptable for classroom writing classrooms and other classrooms across the disciplines, and we'll get to that part. But let's first start with the genesis of the book. How did this book, Text Gen Ed, come to be?
1: I can handle that one maybe because... Um... Well, yeah, I, you know, so Tim and I talk all the time about AI, uh, and a lot of other things too. Tim and I are, um, friends way back from graduate school. So, you know, I feel like sometimes you kind of look at the genesis of things and you see people are totally different institutions, and then you can kind of trace back their lineage and you can see like, you know, they've known each other for 20 years, mostly graduate school, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so uh, and Tim and I had written an article in 2017 together about um bots and uh political amplification and writing. And so we've been kind of carrying on that conversation, at least since then. Um and um and then of course, uh with GPT 2 um coming out, um, you know, that was that increased our conversations. We were really interested in it. Um And so we kind of were thinking about, you know, wouldn't it be kind of fun to do a, um, you know, people were starting to teach with text gen um, or uh, text generation technologies, um, things like that. Um, And so I thought it would be fun to do that. And then I came up with the name, which I became very excited about. Um, And so I thought, well, if we have the name, then we should do something with it. Um, And I had taught a class in the fall of 2021 that Carly uh, was part of um, at UNC. Um, which is, you know, uh, well, I'll let Carly talk about herself, but she's amazing and had found me and, you know, zoomed into this class the whole time in 2021 and, um, on automating writing. And so I just thought, you know, here's somebody I'd like to work with again, too. Um, and, you know, these are really interesting topics. And then, you know, it was basically like, how do we get this going as fast as possible? Um, and, um, and, um, Clearinghouse is amazing. Um, and so, you know, really, uh, a group that I, again, wanted to collaborate with too. So, um, so that's the genesis of the book as far as, um, my part of it, at least.
3: Yeah, that, that comes close to covering it. Um, we, <laughs> and, and I kind of G-chat, um, about research topics. We read our, each other's writing. Um, we snark um about our institutions (laughs) in cathartic ways um and and that that emerged uh and then annette suggested carly um who was a, a fabulous contributor um and brought really a kind of another dimension um since annette and i are most plugged into um rhetoric and composition uh and carly's more plugged into the digital humanities um kind of new media crowd yeah i
2: uh it's been so fun to work with Tim and Annette on this project um, to a sort of see how their collaboration has sort of been sustained and evolved since their friendship in graduate school. And um, it's, it's just, it's a good vibe with them. Um, And, and to Annette's point, I'm a firm believer in the power of a cold email and am so grateful (laughs) that Annette allowed me to did on her class. Um, I was in North Carolina uh, and she was in Pittsburgh and, and we sort of started our our like r- our relationship and collaboration from there and and I can't say enough good things about both Tim and Annette as as co-editors of this collection and then also just as sort of like mentors for me as I am an early career scholar.
0: That's incredible. Uh, First of all, this is a moment to acknowledge the incredible mentoring that occurs in our field, right? But also a moment to say, maybe do press send on that cold email. They do work. They really do work in our field, which values the community and and helping each other um, along the way. Uh, Carly, you're right. Uh, in 2018, I believe it was, Derek Sparby, Digital Rhetoric. I, I was introduced to these this V and Lacantano stuff <laughs> on her Digital Rhetoric syllabus. So uh, like you, it was really nice to hear from Annette uh, and hear that folks are listening and find the podcast useful. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to contribute to that part of the conversation as well. But something you mentioned stuck out to me, and that is uh, the WAC Clearinghouse and the importance of collaborating with this venue, right? Um, Why was that important? Why was it important for this collection to be open access?
3: I reached the... Part of my career where I had tenure, which is nice. And then I thought to myself, I'm not necessarily sure um, I ever have to publish anywhere that's not open access ever again. Um, and and I, I certainly will, right? I mean, you know, the, the options are the options. Um, but it's just nice to have the work out there circulating. Um, Annette had worked with them on a project um, about writing at Dartmouth. Um, had nothing but great things to say about them. And that's, you know, that's what we continue to find. They were incredibly responsive, um, uh, very thoughtful about the way they went. um, And uh, they're just doing excellent work.
1: So, yeah, I mean, here's clearly a place where Tim and I, I think, have mutually influenced each other because similarly, post-tenure, I mean, I valued open access. Um, before tenure, too, but there is a kind of freedom that happens in tenure, where really, like you know, you you really don't have as much to prove anymore. Um, and so I found, I mean, this Dartmouth project was kind of a skunk works project that I did, and um, and they just, I want to say, particularly Lindsay Harding, who has been the kind of managing editor for both of these projects. I cannot say enough good things about her. And then Mike Mike Palmquist, who leads the Wet, wet Clearinghouse, is really just. Um, An amazing supporter of open access resources and um, writing across the curriculum. And, you know, Charles, you mentioned things about um, positive things about our field in rhetoric and composition. And I think, you know, WAC Clearinghouse embodies a lot of those and it is a spirit of sharing and support. And um, I just want to do everything I can to support that kind of aspect of our field. It's one of the things I really value. So And plus, it's just like super fun to have your work circulating, as Tim said. Although hilariously, you know, when I announced the book coming out, my dad was like, oh, this is great. How much money are you going to make from this textbook? (laughs) And I had to break it to him. Like, uh, you know, there is nothing there's nothing to be made from this. So um, but, you know, it's just like this is part of my job and it's a wonderful part of my job. And I'm really glad to um, kind of support this work circulating in the field and our collaborators and things
2: like that. Yeah, I have to say I I. In graduate school, I never sort of had any illusion that I was going to make me- any money off of the writing that was going to happen. So I've been, you know, since graduate school and since uh, like choosing a teaching track role, um, I think having things open access is just like a priority for me in kind of my scholarship going forward, especially for like an, a, a teaching resource. Um, and I don't know. Annette or Tim, if if we're allowed to brag on some of the numbers of circulation that we've seen, but <laughs> I I'm so impressed that the reach that this collection's getting. I think we've had like uh, like upwards of ten thousand page views of the collection in the first two weeks of publication. Um, at least that was the update we got uh, a couple of weeks ago, and so I think like resources like this when they're sort of. Put on the internet and made digital digital digitally accessible to whoever wants to see them, um, like get so much more reach than than you know things that are behind a paywall um or things that are even in print. Um and I think also too, I I we're excited to kind of have a continuing experiments section of the collection where uh educators can share like ongoing experiments with teaching with text generation technologies. Uh in a, in a sort of like updated, a new section that'll be sort of published by, biannually. Um, and I think like having the book in such a flexible digital format, um, allows for like, allows for like a, a truth to how these technologies are, like things are constantly evolving and this format really works with that really well.
1: I wonder if I can say one other thing about this, which is that, um, I think part of our job, especially as research faculty, is, you know, Carly noted, like, this is important as teaching faculty, but as research faculty, I do think we have a responsibility to share our work. And, um, you know, I started out before I went to graduate school, I was a high school teacher, I took community college classes, um, was very involved in the community college in my hometown. And I just feel like it's, it's really important that, you know, if we have the resources to be able to share them with, you know, teachers all over, when Carly cites those numbers, like, we have no idea who's accessing these materials, but, um, you know, likely it's international, it's, you know, I mean, there's like people who are visiting from anywhere. Um, and so it's not just circulating, you know, with people who have um, libraries that have access to um, books and resources.
0: I think that's an important point because um, one of the things, one of the values that I'm working with in the podcast and in my other uh, research endeavors is thinking about how to merge academic and public discourse. And certainly like this is an academic book, but by making it open access, we do invite in other audiences. And so I think that this is an incredible point and an important one to make uh, when concerning open access. Um, Okay. So you mentioned, um, teaching and teaching with this book and the importance there and you mentioned your collaborators and so I want some um, behind the scenes or some inside baseball if you will. Uh, this is this has many collaborators. Uh, I think the number was 34 uh plus the four of you all. Oh, real quick I will mention one of the 10,000 views was me. I have adapted <laughs> uh, a couple of times actually. I have adapted Jason Crider's activity uh for my institution and I ran it already. I haven't assessed the, the work yet, but your work is out there and it's like being in, it's being used. So that's incredible. Um anyway, okay, what was it like to collaborate with 35 different people across an edited collection. Uh, this is tough work and we don't talk about enough about this labor lab, labor aspect of, of our job, of our work, right? Like Annette pointed out. Um, what was it like to collaborate? Pitfalls, failures, and of course, perseverance moments as well.
3: I think we got extremely lucky. Um, we put the CFP out, um, several weeks before chat GPT dropped um and and I had been talking about this last summer there was uh, quite a bit of talk about gpt3 um at computers and writing uh I and you know, Alan Knowles was doing some good presentations there um and Annette had and I had been talking about this for some time and I just think the fact that um the contributors knew that you know there's this is there was we just got lucky with the time right like it was just just lucky and so everyone was pretty much on point. Uh, we worked with 34 collaborators. Um, we had a we did an internal review uh, before we sent it out for an ex before WAX sent it out for an external review. Uh, we posted all of the work. Everyone got in there, provided feedback. Um, people were doing revisions on time. Um, and I know, I think it was just the, the urgency and the time, um, the, and the timeliness of the co- collection, because we, we did 30, we worked with 34 people and everyone, <laughs> everyone was on point.
2: Yeah. And shout out to Annette's schedule. Uh, when, when she sort of, uh, originated this collection, she was like, we're going to do this in a year guys. And I think both Tim and I were like, are we? <laughs> and and we did. And we did. And I think sort of like having like everyone's different strengths came together really well.
1: Yeah, it was a lot of people to come together, but we had a like a really rigid kind of you know schedule, um, set up for the assignments. They already had to have done the assignments. And then of course, again, like I can't say enough good things about Wack Clearinghouse that like the collaboration with them was really great. And that was crucial for the schedule. So when you know i i didn't even have a second publisher in mind i just reached out again to lindsay and i said you know look this is the schedule i really think we need to compress this and get this out in a year to make it timely and um and they were you know she went back and talked with the WAC clearinghouse board and you know they reviewed it and everything and um you know they're like yeah we agree you know full stop let's do it and then you know, they got stuff out um, and online so fast. Uh, and I, I really do think that was crucial. Um, but Tim's right, you know, everybody had everybody knew the urgency for this. Um, and so it really didn't require the same level of uh, nudging, shall we say, as some editorial projects. <laughs>
0: can only imagine what those snarky moments are like between you and Tim and the G-chat. <laughs> uh, right.
1: I deny everything.
0: <laughs> um, so you mentioned the timeliness. I think this is important. So this is kind of a big question, I think, but I'm going to throw it out there. It is timely collection, right? Uh, four Cs, computers and writing. All of, all of our field-specific co- uh, con- uh, conferences conferences across disciplines and sectors. They're focusing on artificial intelligence. In our field, we've heard conversations about the importance of privacy and surveillance in relation to this uh, topic. We've heard words like reimagining, right, and uh, assessment together. Um, Things like accountability between students and uh, instructors. So I wonder, uh, and even administrators and all stakeholders, um, how does your how does your collection kind of respond to some of the discourse that's been going on with the field since ChatGPT has released uh, late last year?
2: Sure. So, um,
1: I mean, a lot of the discourse and rhetoric and composition that I see um, is a kind of recognition of technologies as always being part of writing and the and the teaching of writing and I think there is a little bit of a um, tension there between that discourse and the you know what you see in the Chronicle of Higher Ed or you know some of the other places although the Chronicle has you know had some balance coverage too but there is a kind of anxiety about AI cheating plagiarism things like that um and that stuff is real and does i think actually need to be acknowledged and um and dealt with you know ai is here um and so we need to respond to it but um but what i see in rhetoric and composition is much more of a kind of okay it's here so now what how do we make this part of our writing processes our teaching processes in um you know i hate to say this but generative ways right um and so i think um you know, and, and I think the collection does that. It's showing a lot of good models of how to do that work. And, um, you know, another note about our collaborators too, uh, you know, Tim mentioned Alan Knowles was presenting on really um, interesting things with this. I'd seen Antonio Bird do some interesting things with this. Latrice Calhoun, who um, was a Ph.D. student at um, University of Pittsburgh, Jason Kreider. I mean, these are all people who we specifically invited to be part of this collection because we'd already seen that people were doing interesting things with this um, technology. And so so this was a good way to feature it and, and maybe in some ways offer a little bit of a counter narrative to the, oh no, it's just gonna be plagiarism and the end of writing teaching.
2: Yeah, and to add on to that too, I think something that was important to all of us in this collection is acknowledging the history of text generation technologies that came before AI and the sort of long process of development of these large language models. Um, The chat GPT had had many predecessors. It'll have many sort of antecedents as well. Um, But I think like there's a bunch of really excellent assignments in the collection um, that aren't using uh, artificial intelligence or large language models as their sort of technology of choice. but instead, are using things like Markov chains, uh, Python Python libraries, sort of a, a like a lower tech or older, uh, like predecessors of these of these large language model powered AI models. Um, that kind of like serve to historicize our current moment um, and uh, and sort of acknowledge that you know Chat GPT didn't come out of nowhere <laughs> and. Um, I think that's that's important to me as somebody who's working in creative computation where uh, where these technologies have been in use for like since at least the 50s, the 1950s. Um, when we think about computers and how people have been using them to write, um, as soon as computers developed the capacity to like even make sort of like a Christopher Strakey style like Mad Libs love letter, like people have been using uh, computers to help automate writing and, and, and long before that too, with the sort of like automata um, of the, of the 17th and 18th centuries as well. So I think like that was my sort of uh, like priority for this collection. And, and it was great to see that kind of come through some, like many of the assignments in the collection too.
3: Yeah. I think the, uh, the some of the networks that we were able to draw on of uh, people who have been doing this work helped us create a, relatively measured response, right? This is a very difficult moment to try to understand. Um, I had a faculty member um, tell me AI is a fad. And that's true, right? Like we are in a bubble, but you can both be in a bubble and at the beginning of long-term changes. Um, And so what I'm telling people in workshops is, you know, I'm not sure now is the time when I really want to radically reimagine my pedagogy in the midst of, you know the hysteria, the utopia, the dystopia, the dystopic discourse. Um, but I am going to experiment, and I have been experimenting with my students um, for years. And this is this is you know testing the limits of the technologies, seeing what they can do with them. Um, and uh, that was just something that I tried to keep in mind as we went through the collection, um, and we went and we and we produced it. Um, just because you know, this is a very difficult moment to get a handle on.
0: I think thinking through I think thinking through the uh relationship between other technologies of text generation and AI and large language models, kind of like what uh what Carly was alluding to, is, is really an important point. And I wonder if we could stick there for a moment and and think through what our field can offer um, in terms of other generative ai beyond just like large language models and chat gpt right so uh what do you think about that other i'm sorry i'm just like full of big questions today <laughs> so but but what do you think about that really big question about what our field could offer when thinking beyond just large language models and and text based generative uh, ai
3: I do have an answer to this question. Um, You know, I've read a lot of work from our field over the last 15, 20 years on multimodality, um, and I really enjoyed it. It's been helpful to my thinking and to my teaching. um, Some of Jody Shipka's stuff, um, Paul Pryor's stuff. I I love their work. Um, I didn't always like the term multimodality simply because it really wasn't like a part of like the popular imagination, right? When I was talking with, when I was doing professional development workshops with people across the curriculum, um, people would stop and say, what is that? What does it mean? Um, and if anything, one of these things, these new multimodal language models are going to do is introduce that term to everyone, right? And so we do have like a body of research that these really good researchers have been doing now for fifteen or twenty years, that I think might you know get get closer looks from people outside of our field, better circulation uh, because we have uh, our field has been dealing with those issues.
1: Yeah, I I love that point, Tim. Um, I think that's a really good point. I think um, you know in terms of what we have to contribute, I think we've always been good at kind of resisting the oh no's kind of reaction to things you know the kids can't write and oh no everything is different now because this right um is that the field of composition has been around for long enough that you know again like the technologies aren't freaking us out the processes of writing all these kinds of things um so i think there is a kind of you know there's a kind of space for a, a measured response um and um yeah, I mean, I, I think I I will say my own personal research agenda right now is about the histories of generating text and writing. Um, and so I'm hoping at least that um I can contribute along with a number of people in literature. Carly mentions, you know, that that Lit and um Elit kind of folks have been here for a really long time thinking about Ulipo and generation of text and things like that. And so I think that um these technologies too. Actually, bring together um, literature and composition scholars uh, significantly. So, um, in ways that I find really, really helpful. Um, so, um, so I think that's another thing that we can kind of work on too. That many of us are in English departments where we work across these um, these fields, and um, and so I I think you know, or or even professional writing across the curriculum, et cetera. I think that this is a kind of writing technology that's affecting anybody who's teaching writing. And um, and so
2: we can kind of, you know, help to kind of bridge those spaces a little bit. Yeah, sorry. And I guess I'll just say like as somebody who's situated sort of like hopefully bridging those two worlds between rhetoric and composition, digital rhetoric and, uh, the more creative or, or literary side of things elit uh creative computation um i i have to like completely agree with what annette is saying and it's exciting to sort of have a wider acknowledgement of like these technologies as a way to bridge those two worlds um and i think i think i think it's 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 I have tried to put a rhetorical eye to a lot of the creative computational uses of of text generation technologies. My research is mostly focused on um non-AI methods of text generation, some pretty low tech um <laughs> like like pretty simple python programs, markov chains, that kind of thing and and just a little bit of AI in my own sort of research. Um so it's, it's been fun in sort of how I've developed my own research agenda to kind of try to bridge those two worlds. And I think like this technology is kind of providing a larger platform for, for those kind of disciplinary silos to be broken down a little bit more.
0: This is incredible. Yesterday, uh, or well, no, not yesterday. Uh, well, yeah, yesterday... I published a blog post about an experience I had talking to the writing program about privacy issues and educational technologies. And in the end of that blog post, I pivoted and made a call for literature to like to really start thinking about um, how we do this together. Right. Uh, And so I appreciate that you all are there. It makes me feel good about my work because you all are leading the way on this, right? I'll be honest. Uh, so that may that uh, I'll share that with you all later, uh, too. Well, we talk about writing programs, and we have some writing program administrators, and 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 uh, you all teach writing courses here. So let's kind of talk about writing program administration and AI. Um, I could. I'll just lead with a pretty, pretty open question. You know, what should writing program administrators consider regarding AI? I think that's wide open. I think that could be things focused on curriculum. I think it could be things focused with how we interact with uh, our graduate student assistants and uh, faculty, like teaching stream uh, and adjuncts, uh, contingent faculty members. Um, I think it could mean anything really. And so I'm going to just stop talking and let you take it away.
1: I'll say I really love what um, Tim said when he's working with um, uh, faculty across the curriculum that, you know, we may be in a bubble here, but that doesn't mean that we're also in a space of long-term change uh, with writing. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that's a kind of message that I've been trying to convey too. I've run a lot of local workshops at Pitt um, and some other places too uh, to, you know, work with writing faculty who are working with um. You know, they're, they're like from the medical school and nursing and physical therapy. I mean, I, I don't know a lot about the pedagogies in these spaces, but they are also affected by this technology and um, our marketing. You know, I mean, if we have students graduating from a marketing degree right now, they absolutely need to know about how to use AI. And so I think that kind of understanding um, that AI is here and that we need to consider it. Um, And, you know, maybe not, as Tim said, radically reinvent our pedagogy at this point, but to actually really acknowledge it and then start asking some questions about what are we asking writing to do in our classes and then posing that question to other faculty and that's faculty across the curriculum or, you know, I mean, I have to say I am so incredibly lucky with the teachers in the composition program at University of Pittsburgh, who I learned so much from, um, especially the teaching faculty who, quite frankly, teach a lot more than I do. They have a lot more student contact. So as a writing program administrator, um, you know, I, I am um, I'm, I'm less kind of in the classes. Uh, and so learning about what students are doing, um, how they're responding, how they're taking up these technologies, and just having a lot of conversations is something that I would recommend. Um, I've also run surveys for our students at Pitt to kind of get uh, data on how they're using the technologies, what they're feeling about the technologies, um, and found some really interesting information, which, you know, I don't know if it generalizes beyond Pitt, but I think that every WPA should be surveying their own students and their own faculty about how this is going down in their local
3: context. One of the reasons why I love working at Lafayette, um, we actually do have also have an engineering school, which is a little bit odd for a liberal arts college, Um, but it's because the mathematicians are the floor below me. Um, Philosophers are down the hall. Um, engineers and STEM, I interact with them all the time. Um, and it's amazing how different the uptake is, um, not only among different disciplines, but even within the same discipline, right? Um, there was a, a study, um, a study published of 19 computer scientists. It was a qualitative study, um, uh, where a computer, two computer scientists, in, uh, interviewed 19 uh, people who teach programming in higher education. And what that found is that they were effectively split down the middle about whether or not they should be bringing the code completion technologies into the class, how fast they how fast they were going to do that. So even a very tech savvy discipline like that um, still had very uh, kind of dramatically differing opinions um, about what people should be doing. Um, and that's definitely something that I'm seeing. Um, we have a couple. We have a couple faculty who are teaching first year seminar. Our, our writing program is responsible for training our first year seminar um, teachers. We have a couple faculty who have said, "All right, I'm going to give students. You know, they can use it for whatever they want." Um, and I'm kind of interested in seeing how that experiment works out. Um, it's not something that I've done. I've in my classes I, I kind of specify for each assignment. Okay, this is this is you know where we're going to be. AI might help you, um, and then in some other assignments I want, I, I want them to do particular kinds of work. So I say you know avoid the AI, uh, and I think bouncing back before between those two gives you enough credibility um, so that students aren't kind of surreptitiously using it when they're not. At least I I have I still have that faith in my students. Um, but yeah, the the disciplinary responses are are dramatically different even within disciplines, and and it's a really fascinating to watch it unfold.
2: Yeah, and I don't know that I have much too much to add, just to kind of emphasize like the importance I think of recognizing like a this is a technology that to some degree has been around for a while, but we are in a bubble. This is sort of the first time these technologies have had the sort of like, like widespread or mainstream like access or knowledge, um, and so I think like I I've been describing the mode that I've been taking this year as like a as a um, as a scholar like to be in sponge mode <laughs> and just be like absorbing absorbing everything about the institution that I'm at where I'm at uh, sort of learning from my great colleagues at hopkins and and the students that i teach but i also think that's a mode that applies to kind of everybody at this moment with regard to this technology like i think the best thing that people can be doing is is talking to one another and and talking across disciplinary lines because as tim was saying like the issues affecting folks in computer science as a result of this technology are not that different than the issues that we as 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 writing program folks are are dealing with. Um, so I think, like like for like Hopkins is doing, and I'm I'm sitting on a lunch and learn uh, next week as as one of the facilitators with a computer scientist and with with somebody from public health talking about these issues. And so I think like that's that's where we are because these technologies are so new to the mainstream and and in a, and accessible in a way that they hadn't been. Previously, and so I think I, I I'm an advocate for sponge mode this year in in many different facets of of my life and others.
0: So one of the things that was mentioned that I think is important in these conversations, I'm so glad to hear you all say, it, is the the local context part, right? Um, and so I wonder, I guess here in Texas, we are ending the fifth week of the term. I'm not sure if you all are on semesters or quarters, and that will probably, you know, change where you are in your semester. But if you are five weeks in, or you're a little way, bit of the ways in, what are some things you're finding from working with um, with students and AI in your classes this semester? Uh, think, because I know you've all been working with it for a while, but specifically, I'm thinking about maybe different approaches and responses among incoming freshmen or undergraduates versus graduate students, uh, what are some of the things you're finding when you talk with your different students about this topic in your classes?
3: I'm teaching a 300-level class full of um, English majors, an introduction to the English major class, and I'm talking frequently with faculty who are teaching FYS. Um, I have a little bit of a concern um, that the English majors are developing too, uh, a relationship with these technologies that are too adversarial. Um, I, I did a survey in that class, the 300 level class, there were 18 students, um, all 18 had tried it, only one um, ever uses it for anything. Uh, now user experience on these technologies is still not very good right um and they're going to be integrated uh, in better ways um and there's just a lot more in the pipeline to make them more useful and more functional i mean i have a difficult time um using them and, and getting them to do anything particularly productive um unless it's churning out uh you know writing i really don't want to do um but most of the students um they don't seem to want to use the technologies at least uh, at least in my class um You know, and that that could be because English majors might feel some particular threat from it. It could be because my students believe that they're generally better at writing than these technologies and a good deal of them are. Um, But it's it's an odd dynamic that I I am not quite able to explain it yet. Um, And, you know, I don't think um, I don't think that. well, Well, we'll have to see what happens over the next several years. Um, whether or not people have to fold these technologies into their workflow in order to keep up with other people. Um, there could be a giant kickback about against like AI pros, right? It's relatively identifiable. Some of the people that I've interviewed in another project that I've been working on um, say I'm already sick and tired. Human resources people say I'm already sick and tired of hearing the Chat GPT voice. Um, and then the other question that you asked, and I've been thinking about this as well, is. Is it the case that my, my older English majors kind of already have their writing process set? And so it's much more difficult for them to integrate these technologies into it versus say a student in late middle school or high school or late high school who is kind of trying to formulate their process. And this becomes an integral part um, from the beginning. And so are we going to see some sort of kind of you know generational divide between people who work with these technologies from the beginning and then people who are forced to integrate it into their process um, after already kind of having their process
0: crystallized. Tim, I want to, this is fascinating because the second part is something I've been thinking about in relation to the output of dissertations uh, in our field recently. I think that's a completely different subject and a different topic in a different field, and we can come back to it if we want to. But you mentioned the word adversarial, and so I want to press and ask, do you think that perhaps students at the undergraduate level are seeing something like ChatGBT as adversarial because, do you think that that stems from like assessment surveillance and thinking through plagiarism and stuff like that, perhaps thoughts from this group on that topic, on that idea.
3: I think specific to Lafayette. I mean, one of the other reasons why I love working here is that we get very, very good students. Um, And I just think that, you know, getting into a school competitive school right now requires a million different (laughs) backflips, you know, over committing on a thousand different activities and then studying like crazy and, um, the other thing too, is that this technology in the student imagination came online, right? um as a kind of cheating technology, right? It's not to say that that's what they use it for. It's it's that what I was watching, I when I asked students about it and and I and I this was an interesting experience from this summer because I was working with a research assistant who was a student, and she was trying to interview students. And we had 200 Lafayette students, more or less, on campus, and they had a group chat. They were all they were all on campus in the summer doing research. Um, and she was trying to find students to interview, and everyone was reluctant because they thought it meant they would have to fess up to to cheating, right? If they if they gave this interview, and so she got this direct message that said, "No one's going to talk to you about this." Um, and so it's it kind of at least in higher education, among the students that I've been working with, it kind of came online not as something that was like. You can use this to improve your brainstorming. This can be a co-pilot. This can be a co-author. This can make things more efficient. It came online, at least initially, with this kind of cheating stigma wrapped around it. Um, And so who knows how long that's going to last, how temporary that will be or or will not be. Um, But generally speaking, I think um, it's either they're avoiding it just because I have really good students who think that's cheating or they're avoiding it um, because they said, I've done the work to get here. I'm going to continue to do it myself.
2: I think one of the things
1: that um, I really value about what Tim said here, and it's a point I've heard him make a number of times and is also in the introduction to our text gen ed um, piece, is that um that we are invested in writing as people who study writing, who are pretty good writers. We, you know, we all have like pretty solid processes by the time we get to, you know, faculty positions in writing. And I think, you know, Tim, what you're seeing with your English majors, there's that kind of um, vibe from them, right. As they're really invested in writing, they've been rewarded for being good writers all this time. But, um, I think, you know, and and graduate students, I work with graduate students and they, you know, similarly, you know, they may have writing struggles. We all have writing struggles, et cetera. But they are here in part because they're good writers. Right. And so they're kind of resisting this technology. But then you think about 90 percent of the rest of the world who hates writing, does it under duress, like doesn't like it, doesn't do it well. They don't feel confident about it. It's not central to their identity. All these sorts of things and and this technology means something really different for them Uh, and it may you know it may open up different doors writing has often been a gatekeeper for things we know this from literacy studies and so is this technology going to i mean this is one of the the ai some sometimes people say this is kind of ai hype but i actually think that there may be something to this that You know, it could be a way to level the playing field a little bit for people who um, who don't value writing as centrally um, in their workflows, in their lives and their identities as we do. And I and I want to cite Tim as being like really central to me thinking through those ideas, too, because that's everything I'm saying here has been coming out of those conversations.
2: Yeah, and something something that I'll add too is I think at least in the immediate term, when when, when there's this like sort of student fear around like academic integrity, cheating, whatever, I think t- to Tim's point, like when this technology became available to a, a mainstream audience, like for at least like the the students that I've taught at UNC and now at Hopkins, like it either was a, a cheating thing wrapped up in the sort of stigma of, of academic, like disintegrity, or it was just a complete novelty, like a, a way to entertain yourself. Um, and so the utility of it, uh, was not something that they were interested in. And that's something that I've kind of seen come through, but I think like, at least in the immediate term, like where we're seeing, like where I'm seeing people using, uh, these technologies is in these like kind of like like sort of subtle integrations and in email and things like Grammarly and Word docs and I think like I think that's that's where we're starting I think from like a mainstream perspective is like having having like the Grammarly plus whatever that the whatever paid product that is um suggest to you like maybe reword the sentence for like passive voice or clarity in a way that like just a standard Word document grammar checker wouldn't. Um, and I think sort of inserting that degree of nuance into conversations about AI, particularly kind of in the immediate term, because I think that's, that's a way that students aren't really recognized that, recognizing that AI is like showing up in their writing practice. Um, but it very much is. And I think, I think to, to Tim and Annette's point, like it's, it's a way that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a way that de-stresses and sort of is more subtle, um, like the 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 writing process, um, and I think it should just be acknowledged uh, that that's sort of where we are in the in the present.
0: Well, you wrote this book, and we've hardly even talked about it <laughs> how it came to be. But I hope that that's okay because these conversations that we're having are obviously coming from the book, right? And they're important for our field. So a couple more questions as we kind of put the wheels down here. Just a simple, not a simple question, but just a a one-liner. How do you hope that the book is taken up and used by scholars in our field? And where can folks, and maybe one of you can share, where can folks find the book, information about the book online?
2: Well Charles, I kind of want to turn that question around on you. <laughs> um if it's okay. Because so you mentioned using Jason Kreider's assignment in your own Expert. classroom. And 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 I uh, I just I want to hear how that went.
0: Expert podcast guest, Carly. You've just worked your, yourself into your own individual episode. <laughs> uh so okay. Um I ran a couple of them. So let me some context is important. Uh, I'm teaching, it's a graduate level course, writing with digital media. It's the second portion of what we've developed as a sequence where they take a part where they get a bunch of digital writing, digital rhetoric theory, and then they take this class where they get to practice it. So I put, used your book (laughs) to uh, develop a five part playing with digital tools sequence. These are low stakes assignments that, you know, do it, write the half page memo, you get, you know, it's graduate school, but I got a lot of pushback. If I'm being honest, I hope none of my students are listening uh, to, well, they probably will. And they're here, they're hear me throwing them right under the bus. But uh, I, <laughs> in this class, I have like a, it's online. So I have like an instructor F as the instructor forum uh, on D2L, And so I like, you know, released the assignments and everything. And someone popped on there and was like, Hey, yeah. So I did this assignment and there's no bias in this technology. And I I had to stop, right? I had to to say, Wait a second. (laughs) I took a deep breath before I responded to that frequently asked question. (laughs) But, But I think it went well because that opened up a discussion to how we think about bias and what that looks like. Um, And so we've only done the first part of this five part sequence and I'll have to check in with you later, but Carly, I hope that that's what you envision. I hope that you envision writing teachers, taking what you all have put together and integrating it and adapting it for their own classes and in their own curriculum. For me, it's about an applied approach because Many of these people and many of these students are, um, this is a course for the teacher certificate program. So they're thinking about how do we bring AI into the secondary classroom because that's where they teach. Uh, so your your book, perhaps an unintended audience, uh, I don't know, um, secondary students and educators now. I rambled because I was on the spot, Carly, thanks.
2: <laughs> no, I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but
0: I, no, I love I it. T-
2: to, to like, I mean, this is exactly what I think we hoped for, for the collection is I think, um, I, and I think your emphasis on like the local context that you're teaching in is, is something that I'm like, I'm, I think we're all hoping that folks, educators see these assignments and are like, okay, how can I make this work for where I am and the specific uh, students that I teach? Um, So, so I, sorry, I put you on the spot, but I really appreciate you sharing. <laughs> I want to say one thing too that
1: um, I mean, absolutely, I totally agree with Carly that like we put this out there and we hope that people adapt it to their local context. And the the other thing that we did that was really crucial, I think, for this book. Um, so it's open access, right? We're not, you know, haha, we're not making any money off of this. It's like there, right? And WAC Clearinghouse is committed to hosting it. But it's also every assignment is Creative Commons. So that means that people can actually adapt their assignments for their local context. And that was built into the CFP, it's built into the technology. Um, And so that means that, you know, we put it out there and people are going to do what they do with it, you know? So, like, that's going to look really different for, you know, a high school um, context and, you know, rural somewhere or in, you know, somewhere internationally or, you know, in a community college, you know, whatever. And that that's not my place to say what that's going to look like. But teachers can um, can take their own autonomy and and make these assignments fit whatever context they have. So I think I just wanted to have us have those resources out there and um, and then let people do with them what they what they will.
3: Yeah, one of the things I really like about the collection is that there are a sizable number of assignments um, that you can do with very little um tech savvy. Uh, and then they they there are some assignments that require you know more complex technological engagement. Um there's there is a solid range. Um the other thing I liked about the uh the collection is that Annette and I had been talking about these ideas for many months. Um and we had been we had been working on other research projects, um, and I had been giving a variety of workshops. Um, and we kind of took a little bit of a liberty with the introduction. It just became this big idea dump, um, where everything we had been talking about and everything we wanted to say just kind of came out. And we ended up with a really extensive introduction. Uh, it was it was kind of cathartic, actually. Um, but uh, it's it's a row, rel- I think it's, it ended up at six or seven thousand words. Um, it's fairly extensive. Um, I did also want to uh, take up the question about uh, the student pushback and questions of bias, um, just because I also wanted to go back uh, and cite the study that I talked about before yeah. with the computer programmers. That's called it's a it's a paper called "From Ban It Till We Understand It to Resistance Is Futile." Uh, university programming instructors plan to adapt uh, as more students use AI code generation uh, It was from a, a two-person research team at UT, UC San Diego, Lao and Gu. Um, but there was also a very, uh, it was another study published um, that, that made me think, I thought of when you talked about your students. Um, and it was in a, uh, a human factors conference. Um, and it's called Co-Writing with Opinionated Language Models Affects Users' View." Uh, and that may be something interesting to show your students because um, it wasn't just talking about, they actually biased the models when they ran this experiment uh, in particular directions using prompts. Uh, and then they had people write along with them. And what they found is that those models ended up kind of massaging that bias into their pros, right? So it's not just the case um, that we're asking these or we're going to be using these technologies as kinds of search engines or brainstorming um, and those outputs are going to be biased, um, but it's also the case that, that it's going to happen in very, very subtle ways as we begin to kind of co-author, um, co-author with these with these technologies.
1: I think. Let me add to that too that um, you know one of the things that people can do with this uh, book is to kind of read through a bunch of the assignments and then just kind of get some ideas. And so um, I think Alan Knowles's piece in particular. Um, is really useful for thinking through what Tim just said, like the kind of nudging a bias. So basically, he sets up training LLMs on Trump tweets and Pelosi tweets, um, and he had a da- data set just after the January sixth um, situation. And so, um, so he basically had students kind of look through and and train, you know, the the LLMs to make new tweets in Trump or Pelosi styles, but they could nudge it, you know, um, basically making either Pelosi kind of do um, straight up Pelosi kinds of things, or just be like a political satire of political correctness, based on the way that they kind of prompted, um, or did their own little training. So that kind of AI literacy, I think is is really crucial. And we have some assignments that do that. But you know, you could do something in a different way too, right. But but there's an example of um, even having students just reading through that kind of result um, would be helpful.
0: So what are you all doing this afternoon?
2: We have a publicity
1: event actually for TextGen Ed <laughs> that Carly is organizing. So maybe Book Launch
0: Day. I know I saw it, it, that on Twitter.
1: <laughs> <laughs> in fact, we were joking, uh, you know, I kind of mentioned like it's too bad we can't have lunch together in between or something. Tim and I know each other very well, but I've actually never met Carly in person. Um, I look forward to it at some point. Um, but this is, you know, a kind of this is the future that we're in, right? Is like Zoom. It's possible to have major collaborations in this virtual space. But maybe I'll let Carly say something about that launch.
2: Oh no, we're just I'm just glad to be like long-term internet friends with you guys at this point in time. <laughs> um I hope we could get lunch one day. Um, but for for now, like I I couldn't have asked for anything better. And yeah, we we've got our we've got our like official uh book launch happening this afternoon. So it should it should be a good time
3: yeah I uh, I really appreciate uh, you talking with us and I'm going to you know psych myself up for this afternoon event. Uh, what I've found throughout my career is that once a something is published, I never want to see or look or hear about it again <laughs> as long as I live. And so uh, these are really taxing and really challenging things for me to do because I uh, I have difficulty um, thinking about work that I've done. Um, I just don't ever want to touch it or think about it again.
0: It's out there in the world doing things and you have released it. Let it go. <laughs> I like it. Um, so I will uh good luck at your event today. Hopefully it's well attended and then folks will be there. Um just personally, and I certainly can never speak for the field, even though I've developed a podcast and tried to. <laughs> Uh, I think that this is one of the most incredibly important resources that we have received recently. So thank you for for the work you've done putting it together. And I hope you have a great uh, afternoon.
1: Thank you, Charles. Thanks so much for talking with us and for using the resource too.
0: Yes, yes. (laughs) Yeah, it's awesome.
2: Thanks for having us, Charles.
0: interview with Annette, Tim, and Carly. What a treat it was to talk with this group of editors. I was so thrilled to hear from Annette about this interview when she emailed me, and as I told them in the interview, you all heard, these are people whose work I have been citing and referencing for a long, long time. So for me to hear from them and to learn that they value the work we do on the big rhetorical podcast well that's quite gratifying i think that if you adapt or remix one of the assignments in text gen ed you should reach out and let the group know about it how are you using their work taking it up and your own and in your own courses there is so much critical work on ai being done in our field We need to keep talking and sharing ideas. Y'all, I'm so tired. Can someone please come tell my sweet, sweet daughter, Georgia Kate, that humans are allowed to sleep some? Maybe that's advice I need to hear myself. Alas, I'll be back next week with another new episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media. Exalt Digital Media, not-for-profit. The Big Rhetorical Podcast was recorded on the land of many Native nations, past and present. These original homelands are territories of Indigenous peoples who are largely dispossessed and removed. We specifically acknowledge the traditional stewardship of this land by the Wichita, Kikapoo, and Tawakone peoples music for the big rhetorical podcast is brought to you by DJ Lane, Stepha Helix and Admiral Bob.